Hi, it's David Ward from the Rock Therapy Show on Musicians on the Record. Thank you so much. I'm really glad you're here today. If you're back with us today, welcome back. And if you're here for the first time, welcome. I know you're busy. I know you got a life. There's a million, a bazillion podcasts out there. So for you to land here and listen, really appreciate it. If you love hearing about musician stories, them overcoming challenges and what they did to do that, whether it's personal growth and recovery, I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and join us because that's what we bring you every week. We'd love to hear from you wherever you're listening from in the world, and you can connect with us on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. And please let us know who's your favorite musician and whose story you'd love to hear. Also, if you want to see these interviews, there's video too. You can watch all of them on our YouTube channel and our website at musiciansontherecord.com. Thanks again so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Rock Therapy Show on Musicians on the Record. It's not talk therapy, it's rock therapy, where we're having conversations all about music and mental health. I'm David Ward, host of the show, as well as licensed psychotherapist and unlicensed drummer as well. And my guest today, I couldn't be more stoked to have him on the show. A very talented guy. He's a drummer, music producer, motivational speaker, and we're going to talk about overcoming stage fright. Mr. Mark Schulman is on the show. Welcome, Mark. What's up, David? Now, I want to know what the definition of an unlicensed drummer means. I'm just drumming without a license, man. I don't, I'm just going for it, you know? So oh, Come on, man. We all have artistic license. Isn't that the whole idea? There you go. There you go. I love it. I love it. I, uh, you know, I want to talk about because you're you're drumming with Pink. You're you're you've been the drummer for Foreigner, Share, and many other Stevie Nicks. My God, and your book. I want to let folks know your book is called Conquering Life's Stage Fright: Three Steps to Top Performance. And yes. uh, I, I was taking a look at some of that, and I want to talk all about that. You know, overcoming stage fright. However, if we could start, Mark, you're the first uh, person that I've been able to interview since we all found out the news about the loss of Neil Peart uh, over yeah. the weekend on Friday. And I just wanted to try to get your thoughts or feelings, uh, I any inspirations that you've had from Neil and Rush. Well, I will say that um, th that was a profound loss to the drumming community because he was one of the top three influencers in the history of drumming. And, you know, I lost my mother recently and I, there's a couple ways to look at it. I mean, we need to grieve. A friend of mine was literally grieving. He was such a fan. Um, and I had met Neil a couple of times. I didn't really have a connection with him, but I had met him. But I had seen Rush, and I understand, you know, I feel like I have a grasp of sort of his approach and who he is and why he does what he does. But I think that on one hand, you need to grieve. On the other hand, wow, what a celebration of an amazing influencer, an amazing life, yeah. a prof had a profound effect, changed the complexion of music forever. I mean, he had, you know, second to only probably Ringo and Buddy Rich. He had that profound of an effect. Yeah. Now, um, that's the way we look at it. We need to celebrate. I went back, I listened to him, I looked at videos. It was sort of like, 
okay, it's a chance to really appreciate what somebody has contributed and their approach, because his approach is very succinct, very definitive, very uh, planned out. You know, he was not an improviser. He was a man who was a a thinking man. His lyrics were very, very extremely well thought out and uh, actually rather heady and deep. Yes. And serious. And that's the way his drumming was. Very, very concise, very exacting. Ex- absolutely exactly the same notes at every performance, but with such a strong intention. He's a very serious man. So his approach to music um, was I'm going to do the work and I'm going to work very, very hard. Again, from what I understand, I don't know him that well, but this is what I see. This is what I picture. This is what I pick up, especially talking to other drummers and other people that have known him. Um, And the people that have actually known him and have been close to him loved him, spoke very highly of him. The rest of us that just had a chance to meet him one or two times, um, there wasn't an enormous amount of warmth expressed from this particular man. But I understand. I mean, he had a very hard life. You know, he lost his wife and daughter in a car crash. That's inconjugable, you know, for me. Um, And he came back and he was just so dedicated. And when he left Rush in this big warehouse, you know, up in in the close to where I live, and he would just go to go to his warehouse eight hours, nine hours a day, like it was a job. And he would practice drums and work on his motorcycles. And, but it was like a, he had a daily routine. He was a, just such a disciplined um, man. And I think that that's what his expression of drumming was to the planet. And also just he was one of the forerunners of that real prog rock right. experience for yeah. so many people. Yeah, a lot so to admit. I say grieve and celebrate. Absolutely. Great advice right there for for all of us uh, with anybody, you know, we've lost, but especially with Neil, a lot to admire in that man, both musically and and personally. You're right. And I will say one more thing that was really extraordinary about him is, you know, he studied with the great Freddie Gruber. Now, I was one of Freddie's earlier students when I was a kid, and Freddie is one of the most profound teachers. Mm -hmm. And Neil was known to be, you know, very regimented, very stiff, especially after he played the first Buddy Rich Memorial um uh performance it was like it felt very stiff so i think after that he got a hold of freddie and freddie actually like loosened up he was very he was always he was a constant student so he allowed freddie to come in and take a man who had done things the same way for so long and actually loosen it up and that was my connection i met him through freddie actually Ah. before freddie passed on okay so I, i i always give a lot of kudos to anybody who's a constant learner. I consider myself a, a, a chronic student, I call myself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm always learning. I always want to know, sure. you know, the, the ability, you know, the moment that you think you know it all, the moment you think you've arrived, yeah. the moment that you just literally just sort of die and, and stop learning and you're really just sort of atrophying. Yeah. So I believe that he was a man that, although he was very set in his ways and was very disciplined, he was willing to learn more. So I give him credit for that. No question about it. And I, I love it. There's always more to learn, no matter what level, you know, even at the highest level where you are at today. It's uh, pretty incredible. Can I oh my ask? God. A- I, I, the more I know, 
the more I realize I need to know. Right. Life just gets more humbling as I go on. No question. I yep. get less egotistical as yep. I go on. That's the wisdom of age, right? At 18, we think we know it all, but now now it's we've got a little bit of wisdom. Can I ask I get excited by what I by what I right. learned and I can't wait to incorporate it, you know, because I give um, my goal is 75 corporate speeches this year. I, I went, last year I was on the tour of tour with Pink, six months of touring, 41 high-end corporate speaking gigs. And by the way, I, I've, I've re, I've re, I reinvent myself and I love, I love to use the term in, um, improvisation as a metaphor for all industries. I've even improvised my name. I use my, I call myself an activational speaker as opposed to motivational speaker. I know motivational speaker, people understand that. But uh, to me, it's ad nauseum a little bit because any great speaker is motivating, but motivation is just the beginning. You need to be motivated to take action. And then when you take action, that's when stuff you actually create and that's when stuff actually happens. And I tell my audiences that I say, I'm not a motivational speaker. You know, I said, I'm an activation speaker because I want you to walk away immediately taking action based on the information that I've given you and hopefully the inspiration and the motivation that I've given you. You know, that's one of the questions I had for you, because for most folks, uh, drumming for Pink and Cher and Stevie Nicks and Foreigner, that would be a good enough gig, right? But at some point you went, I need more, I need to give back more, and you started doing this activating speaking. Where did this all start? Well, you know, it started with my beautiful parents who are both college professors. They grew up, you know, in the LAUSD, the Los Angeles Unified School District. And so I think I got some of their marvelous genes of being able to teach. And I started teaching drums at 19 years of age. I gave my first drum clinic in 1991. And when I did that, I realized, wait a minute, I think I have a little bit of a talent as far as being able to get up in front of an audience and be articulate. And as I did hundreds, probably a thousand drum clinics, I started to realize that people were resonating more with the learning components and the success coaching components of what I say more than just the chops. Because I've got my share of chops. There's always a guy with many, many more chops. And trust me, with some of these drum clinics you go to, you just want the guy to shut up and play. In my instance, I think that I have been enough of a, or, or studied enough philosophy and had enough experience that I can then express this experience and people are going to learn more from that than, you know, the paranormals and whatever diddles that I'm playing. I mean, they're going to learn from my playing, but they're going to learn from actually watching how I play as opposed to what I play. That's what I talk about in my speeches. So at a point, um, I'll never forget because one of the great mentors and one of my dear friends, Dom Femularo, we were doing a clinic tour together in Europe in 1995. He and I and Hubi Lemon, the German rep representative, we were in this van and we were going all these little towns in Germany and it was Dom and me. So I had this immense influence every night. And Dom was the one that was saying, you know, I was doing this drum clinic once and this guy came up to me with his little kid. The little kid was at the clinic and the guy was a CEO and he said, you know, I love what you do. It's so motivating. Can you just come to my, my, my corporation and just do exactly what you do? Don't change a thing. And then he says, the guy tells him, I, I think I have about $7,000. Would that be enough? You know, we're making 500 bucks a, a, a drum clinic. And, you know, and so he did it. And from that point in my head, I always thought to myself, well, 
it's true. The microcosm of the drumming community, it's small. So if I could take what I'm doing and expand it so it has relevance to other businesses and other contexts, and that's what I did. So a few years later, I started doing some college gigs, and then I started doing some small corporate gigs, and I real and I learned corporate speak. I learned how to have conference calls. I learned how to understand where they are coming from, their challenges, their pain, and their successes, and how I could take my experience and the musical metaphor, because music is the greatest metaphor for, for performance. Like you see all these sports figures that speak, and I get called so many times from musicians that want to speak to corporations as well. But I did a lot of work. I studied with a speak, you know, two speaking coaches, an acting coach, a director, a storyteller. I learned how to sort of develop that craft of of speaking. I mean, I already had 30,000 hours. I had way more than Malcolm Gladwell's hours on stage as far as just being comfortable on stage. But then it was a matter of taking what I do and involving performance and involving useful information and immediate content takeaways for that. And that all came around the time when I chose to write the book. And the reason why I, the impetus for writing the book is I was hanging out with this really great speaker that my then manager and dear friend Stephen was working with as a, in a legal sense, this guy by the name of Dr. Paul Stoltz. And it was Paul. We were hanging out on his deck, and Paul's a very, very wealthy, very successful speaker, dear friend. He developed the um, AQ, adversity quotient, which is based on the fact that he realized that if he can go into corporations and um, raise people's ability to deal with um, adversity, they would then perform better because they would be less susceptible to the adversity. Anyway, he asked this question, and I'm surprised nobody had ever asked me. He said, Mark, how many people do you think have played for in your life? And I sat there for a while, and I was thinking about, I was thinking about every performance. I was thinking about every um, you know, bar I had played for and every video I had done and every live performance and every television performance. And when I started telling it up, I said, I looked at him. I said, oh, my God. I literally jumped out of my chair. I said, dude. I think I performed for over a billion people in my plan, in, in, in my life. And that was sort of the impetus. And it was actually Stephen, my, my friend's idea, who, who was my manager at the time. We were putting together sort of topics for the corporate gigs. And one of the topics was not conquering life stage fright, but overcoming life stage fright. And then I got offered a book deal from another brilliant speaker and one of my great mentors, Tim Sanders, who's was the top chief solutions officer for Yahoo, who had started this new book, this new publishing company. He said, I, I want to give you a book deal because you got so much to say. But he said, what would the topic be? And I immediately latched onto this conquering life's stage fright topic. Um, but then I realized that it really isn't about, that's a negative goal. You know, a negative goal means you're focusing on the problem, whereas as opposed to focusing on the result. And then another one of my dear mentors, my life coach, Dr. Jim Samuels, who I'm writing my current book with, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, but he had said, you know, uh, the first title of my book was Nerve Breakers, Conquering Life Stage Fright. And he said, well, you got to tell them the goal. What are they going to get out of it? Not, not what's the negative goal? What are they trying to avoid? So then I changed the name of Conquering Life Stage Fright, Three Steps to Top Performance, because it's actually based on three concepts that Dr. Jim created 
called Clear, Capable, Confident. And I changed it to Clarity, Capability, and Confidence. So it's really a book about top performance. It's about stage fright, but if you if you really look at it a little bit more detailed, you realize that the way to sort of conquer stage fright, the ultimate goal is not conquering anything. The ultimate goal is creating confidence in everything you do, being on stage being one of them. And I get plenty of examples of that. But let's think about the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is confidence. If you are confident at what you do, then you will succeed no matter what. So these three steps, clarity, capability, confidence, are sequential. Clarity meaning you are have ex- exact understanding about your goals. You know exactly what you want to do, exactly why you want to do it, because remember, why is the big motivator? Why do you want to do what you do? What's your in- intrinsic motivation? You need to get in touch with your why. And that's why at a point I realized um, it's a whole other story. I have so many stories to tell, but I realized after a, an experience with Billy Idol, um, and he talked about the fact he had actually said something and said, you know, man, I used to get on stage and I would sing every song like it was every note, like it was the last note I would ever sing. When he hit that, it triggered something in my brain when I realized, wow, when I get on stage, it really is not just about what I play. It's about how I play it. And every single note matters. And if I, every single note matters, I attach a sense of purpose to every note. If I attach a sense of purpose, I become more passionate. I have a better time. And that's why I do it, because every note has purpose. And then I perform at a much higher level when I give every note purpose. And that's why I do it. So you need to be clear about what you're doing and why you're doing it. And once you have clarity, um, you need to become really proficient at your skills. You need to build um, capability. And capability is the key. Because if you go on stage and you're really a little uncertain about what you do and you haven't rehearsed, you should be scared. You should be scared. It's your body's protection mechanism. Right. But when you practice for hours and hours and hours and hours and you understand, you get on stage or you practice, I practice my speech hundreds of times. So when I get on stage, it's not like I don't have the, the butterflies, but the little bit of butterflies can actually make you sort of hypersensitive and give you energy and it's okay. It gives you that sort of that edge, but I've done the work and that drives real confidence. So even if you quote unquote screw up or you think you're going to screw up, you have real confidence because you've done the work. And then there are some, a lot of tricks I talk about in the book, like, you know, Tony Shea, the CEO of Zappu, so, who, who's a billionaire and he's a good friend of mine. I auditioned him for the other book and the recent book. He said, look, I always have butterflies when I go on stage. I always have this go-to story that I know I can tell um, that's going to get me over. Because, you know, the thing about, you know, stage fright, quote-unquote, um, when you're going into a meeting, whether you're talking to your spouse, whatever it happens to be, is it goes away very quickly if you're prepared. In other words, the confidence sets in very, very quickly. If it doesn't go away quickly, then you do maybe have some actual psychological issues, and then they need to talk to you and get counseling. Right. <laughs> That's your job. Right. But it goes away quickly. And yep. before you know it, you're, you're so focused on what you're doing. And another thing that I trick, another one of my tricks so I get on stage and play drums immediately because that's my go-to. I know if I play drums a little bit, whew, I can just sort of blow off that, you know, the, 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 um, the butterflies. Um, another 
trick is, you know, when I used to, when I first started speaking, I was pretty darn nervous because it was new to me. But then I started realizing, hmm, if I'm nervous, who the heck am I thinking about? I realized, oh, I'm thinking about myself. And then I kind of laughed and I released and a lot of the stress fell off. Who should I be thinking about? The audience. And now one of my mantras or prayers before I go on stage is, I'm going to love these people. I'm going to give them so much love, direct all this energy from me to them. And if you direct the energy to them, then you don't have time to think about your own stage fright. You don't have time to think about yourself and all your issues and all your concerns. The heck with you. It's not about you. It's about them. Right. When we get on stage to perform, we want to have fun, but it's about raising the level of the audience. When you're a drummer, you're a musician, when you're a singer. I mean, when people come to a pink concert, they want to be taken out of their lives. They want to be transported. They want to be lifted. So it's not about me. Who the hell cares if I got stage fright? It's about them. I am there to be of service to the band members, to the audience, and most importantly, to pink. I look at every time I get on stage, I'm there to be of service. If you look at it as being a service business, you don't have time to worry about yourself and think about your problems and your issues. I'm here for you, baby. And so these are a little bit of some of the some of the quick little fixes that I have in my book. But I address all different kinds of people because everybody learns differently. Everybody has different issues. But that's why I put out the book is re as really a definitive um book on how to perform at the top level not to overcome stage fright but how stage fright doesn't even become an issue it's you become the, the focus is on how am i going to be a better performer how am i going to be a more effective presenter how am i going to be of service so when i get on stage these people are feeling me and i ain't so isolated and insulated into my own issues right. um because who the hell cares? I mean, it was like Tony Shea said something funny. He said, yeah, maybe 10, 20, 100,000 years ago when you saw a bunch of eyes on you, that meant you were going to get killed or attacked or a saber tooth, let's just saber tooth tigers. Now eyes on you are adulating, they're adoring. Not to mention the greatest fear above and beyond, above death is public speaking. Right. So right. most people would rather die than get on stage. Right. It's so ridiculous. Yes. But that, that goes back to our innate sort of DNA, but it's not present time. Right. So if you stay in present time and realize it's not about, this doesn't mean death or destruction. This means joy and lifting and being of service. You need to stay in present time. Yeah, and I love it. That's a lot of rock therapy wisdom right there, Mark. Just, <laughs> yeah, sorry, you know, right. No, that's a tangent. But oh, I, I love it. Get it all out. I love it. That's fantastic, especially because, you know, so many, uh, you know, getting out of ourselves by the process or channeling it and helping others, serving others, like what you're talking about is a, a, a huge thing. You're also doing like two of the main uh, frightful things or anxiety, you know, playing for thousands of people on stage and public speaking. So you're just rocking this whole thing out of it. Uh, how did you work through or get over some of that initial stage fright early on, whether public speaking or being on stage? Well, as I tell the story in my book that I'd already been playing professionally. I had my own band. Uh, my buddy Dan Reed calls me up and he's been on the road opening up for Bon Jovi. He already had a deal. He was 24. I was like, you know, 25, 26 or whatever. And he, he said, so I was hanging out with the guys from uh, Bad English, who were the guys from Journey. They were creating this new band. And we decided they don't want 
sort of one of their peers. They want to find a new, young, fresh, virgin drummer. And I think you'd be perfect for it. So a week later, there I was auditioning for Bad English. So it was basically a jam session. I didn't know any songs. And I was so overwhelmed with fear and nervousness that to make a long story short, I, I sped up so quickly and I just completely blew the audition. And I was so upset with myself. I was in the car literally crying and banging on the on the on the steering wheel going, I should have listened to my folks. I should have been a doctor, an attorney, a, a dentist, you know, do the high IQ stuff that my parents told me to do. I chose to be a drummer, but then I realized that was a, a it wasn't a, I thought that the defining moment would be that I got the gig, but the defining moment was that I lost the gig and had this very strong realization that I needed to go back to do the work because what had happened was I hadn't mastered my internal sense of time. So what I thought is, okay, here's a moment of truth. I'm either going to step off the stage forever and quit because I lost this one big audition. It was traumatic for me. Or I'm going to just make the choice right then that I'm going to increase my skill. And I became obsessed with time. I, I joined up with uh, still teaching good friend of mine, Tom Mendola, teaches the rhythm course, which is just how to develop your internal sense of time. So for two years, I got involved myself with the rhythm course so I could be just know that I was an absolute expert, that my time would always be great. And from that point on, I would have real confidence. And so then I, you know, a series of circumstances led me to getting my first road gig with Brenda Russell. And then I uh, got a chance to go out with Richard Marks and I auditioned for Foreigner and bada boom, bada bang, bada bang. And it kept on going. But it was based on me doing the work. In other words, creating real confidence. What had happened is I went into that audition thinking that I had a skill set that I didn't really have. I should have been nervous in that sense that I hadn't really arted the internal sense of meter. I could play well. I had a lot of understanding. I led my own band, but I needed more work. So when I had clarity about what I needed to catch, what I needed to do, develop the capability, develop real confidence, by the time I had the opportunity again, I knew my time was rock solid. Now I'm obsessed with time. I mean, I'm just, I could, you know, I could tell you, I could count out, or, you know, tell you what, you know, 120 beats. That's about 120 right there. You can clock it. I can tell who in the, the band is slightly behind, slightly ahead. I mean, I've become so, but that was part of it, was really mastering that and putting in those hours. Yeah. And so that's what happened. That was sort of the impetus. And then, you know, the thing with Paul Stoltz and after a while I realized, okay, I need, I want to write a book because I got a lot to say and I've studied a lot of philosophy and have a, and can tie all this stuff in. So I felt like, look, we all have stories to tell. We all have valuable information. Um, I have a pulpit from which to shout it because I've had people will listen because of the experience I've had, because you can't take the experience away when someone's played with Billy Idol and Pink and Cher and, and Simple Minds and all these people. I, you can, can't take that away from me, but it's worth listening to because it's actual, real success. You know, un, un, undeniable. And when you've had the undeniable amount of success, then people will listen because they'll go, well, I'm listening to somebody that, you know, really did it. Right. You know, and, and, you were, when the, and when the drummers, when they're watching me in the clinic, you know, they may not be getting like, a gazillion chops, but hey, I'm still the one up here, not you. That's right. So you got something to learn from me. So that's you right. might as well listen. 
And you had you were clearly good enough drummer to even get the audition uh, with bad English. Had you ever heard that feedback before about your time, or you had nope. felt it was yeah. Nope. So it was a whole new level, whole other level. But that was just it. It's like I wasn't ready for the world class yet, but now I knew what I needed to do to get ready for the world class. I knew what I needed to to. to um, improve upon well and I, I also want to appreciate the important lesson i think here the another rock therapy moment of making something out of some of these losses even though you had some intense feelings about it there was a gift in this loss for you that seems oh, like a gift in every mistake i mean every you know thomas edison says you know i i i what is, i don't know his exact quote but it was essentially like i needed to fail a thousand times to succeed once so how much are you willing to fail? I mean, a lot of people, every, it's almost like every single book I've read by every CEO or every successful person in the corporate or the music business talked about all these failures that they endured to get to where they are. Because whenever you fail, if you're smart, you learn what you need to learn from the failure. Right. And then it becomes an asset. And then you can use it to your advantage. Then you know what you need to work on, what you need to improve upon. I love the story that you told in on your website about, uh, and I would love for you, for folks watching or listening in the podcast, if you could tell the story of um, imagining um, the failure, because you just mentioned that, and sort of the way you blew it up and over-exaggerated it to get it to a better place for you. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Well, it's funny because even in communication, um, this is actually a process that my mentor, my dear friend, Dr. Jim created called, it comes from uh, something he calls reminding where if you have a, a trouble or a problem or an issue, um, if you blow it up to the point where it's ridiculous, you can blow out the stress related to it. So you think about like, what's, what, what's, what's the worst thing that could happen or you're, or you're afraid of something. Okay. I get on stage. I drop my sticks. Um, I fall off the drum stool. I break my nose. My there's blood streaming out, and you get as as exaggerated as you possibly can to the point where you actually laugh, because right. then you're releasing the stress, and then you've really relived or you've lived all the possible worst things that can happen. Um, now what? And then you say, well, then you focus on, well, then how can it? How can you create success? What's the best thing that can happen? Because you've already fantasized. All right, it's happened. Then what? Okay, it gets worse. Uh, I, then I get up and I break my arm, and then everybody laughs at me. And then what? And and you make it so ridiculous that your body needs to laugh. And then when you laugh or you cry, sometimes people have grief releases. But what happens is we call these releases. Along with every release comes a realization. What did you realize about that? You realize, oh, that's so exaggerated. Isn't this an example? That wouldn't happen, you know. And my, I tell my students, one of the greatest things you could do is drop a stick because that means you're relaxed. Just have one close by that you can pick up. I drop sticks all the time. Right. So what? I love the it. recovery is what matters. Practice right. dropping sticks. You know, practice right. the mistake if you're really right. afraid of something. Right. And one of the things that I've done with students when it comes to developing time, I said, purposely speed up. I want you to be in control of it. I said, and I tell my students, look, it's not bad to speed up or slow down. Music is music. Sometimes the band wants to go, so you go with them. Sometimes 
they haven't had enough coffee, they want to pull back. It's okay. Just make it intentional. Put yourself in the cause position of what you want rather than the effect position of what you don't want. So speed up. Record it. Listen to yourself speeding up. Be intentional. Then put on the click track and play perfectly in time. Then take off the click. Play perfectly in time. Or play as in time as you can. Then purposely slow down. Then you're creating what you resist. The moment you create what you resist, the resistance loses its power. You know, as a psychologist, that's very true. We get people to imagine the worst possible thing. It just happened. Now what? Oh, I died. Cool. Now what? Oh, well, I'm born into another body. I get to practice. I get the chance, you know, another right. chance. You know, right. you, you go as, you get as extreme as you possibly can. So you get be- beyond the fear. So the fear doesn't take you over. You start to have control over the fear, so to speak. And I loved that exercise. And it made me laugh just uh, just reading that. So it was fantastic because it, it seems like whether it's public speaking like you do or playing to thousands of people on stage, the core fear is that fear of judgment, fear of failure, uh, you know, fear of forgetting your lines like I've done. And right. I just tell the audience, wow, I got so excited. I don't have any idea what I'm going to say next. Hang on. Let me go back and check my notes. I tell them the truth. Right. And I walk back. And go, oh, that's right. You think they care? First of all, they are so damn happy. It's you up there or not them because they're scared out of their wits. Sure. So. That's the that's the irony of it yeah. is everybody else is actually so happy that you're the one up there because right. you said, OK, he wants to come up and play. I mean, I, I, there are people that want to do it, but who wants to come up and speak, you know, right. or who wants to, it, it's just that whole concept of being on stage because of all the things we talked about and the association people have with it. It's such a frightening thing when the reality is it's not frightening. It's it's your perception. That's right. And remember, we are not our minds. There's something there's something above and beyond our minds. The consciousness is bigger than our minds. The consciousness is senior to our minds. It doesn't exist. It's not real. It's only there. You know, it may seem real. They're only thoughts. And you can make thoughts real by manifesting them. You can also shift your thoughts. Right. Which leads me to the next book that I'm writing, which is all about. Um, A times B equals C, attitude, behavior, consequence. So simple, so obvious. But what we forget is that we can't always control what happens to us. Right. But no matter what happens to us, let me tell a few stories first. Let me tell a story first. This is a great setup. That way you're going to remember it. So again, I interviewed Tony Shea for this book too. So he tells me this story he's never told me before. He goes, you know, man, when I was a little kid, I was at the um, amusement park, and my friend wanted to go on the zipper. Remember the zipper, that thing that you would get on? I mean, they're probably all 80 years old. I don't know if I'd want to go on one now. I think my break, you know. But the truth is, his friend wanted to go on it. He was scared. He didn't want to go on it. His friend convinced them to go on it. They go on it. They get off. His friend says, Tony, well, what did you think? He goes, well, oh, I, I had this this this." weird feeling in my crotch and this weird feeling in my stomach. He said, you're supposed to, that's excitement. Remember I said earlier, the chemistry for fear and excitement are identical. It's just our perception. He said, I'm supposed to. So they went back on and this time Tony had a completely different approach to it, a completely completely different attitude. Your attitude is where you are looking from. It determines what you see. And now Tony is a junkie for the most frightening roller coasters on the planet. 
So you can't control what happens to you, but you have the power always to change, shift, and what I call choose your attitude about what happens to you. But it gets even better because your attitude is what drives your behavior. Your attitude causes the behavior. One attitude can drive many behaviors. Your behavior is what determines the consequences of your life. So you are producing the outcomes and consequences of your life based on the attitude that you choose and create. It's enormously powerful. And you can even reverse engineer it. What do you want to create? What outcomes do you want to create? And what kind of behavior would you need to foster to create those outcomes? And what kind of attitude would you need to mindset would you need to create that type of behavior? And it's so powerful and it's so funny and it's so true and it's so easy and it's so obvious. So we're writing a book on that next because you have that power to even sit on the drum set you're about to play and just create this attitude. I am going to kick ass. I'm going to have as much fun as I possibly can. So I don't want, I, can't, I don't care about anything but having fun. The hell with stage fright, the hell with playing well, the hell with being accurate. My goal is to have fun. So if your goal was to truly have fun, then the behavior would be you'd start smiling and you would actually start having fun. The consequence would be you would have fun and then you would create, you would manifest fun for others, for everybody in the band. And you would play much better because there have been many studies that show the better time we're having, the higher level in which we perform. So if you're having fun, you're going to perform at a higher level anyway. So the more anxiety does not produce higher performance, more fun produces higher performance it's been quantified scientifically that's how our brains work i love it this is great stuff mark you know when you when you guys are are performing on stage with pink uh are you guys talking about this stuff as well backstage i mean you must be a hoot to be uh you know not only on stage with but just traveling with and talking about all of this stuff this is just motivating in and of itself activating well, activating <laughs> i mean i don't get that philosophical necessarily i do one-on-one with people and like i'm really good friends with eva the bass player we talk about this kind of stuff and i've had these types of philosophical conversations with uh some of the other people on the tour adrian is a good friend of mine um jesse i mean i'm I'm good friends with all the people in, in, in my stratosphere and we will have these conversations um but they come up when they come up. It's not like it's all rah rah. Yeah. But one interesting thing that does happen is is one of the attitude shifts, great attitude shifts and powerful attitude shifts I talk about is the attitude of gratitude, yeah. which is enormously powerful. As a matter of fact, about a month ago, I read they did this new study coming out of UCLA, in which they determined that when you really assume the attitude of gratitude fully, it literally changes your brain chemistry. It stimulates the prefrontal cortex. It stimulates the gray matter. It relaxes your immune system. It makes you more open, less resistant, more loving. And your heart actually sends signals back to your brain. I mean, it connects your whole body. So gratitude is enormously powerful for me, and I employ it all the time. Um, So we always have this prayer circle before every gig, and the prayer circle ends up kind of turning it almost into like a gratitude rally because Pink talks about everything for which he's grateful, and it raises everybody's energy. It it emboldens us. it, 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 It integrates us, and we all go on stage playing at a more powerful level. And I've become such an attitude junkie that I sit on my stool, and when I'm not playing, when the dancers are doing a dance or or the um, 
there's a movie going. I turn my stool around. I think about three things or three people for which I'm grateful. And I can feel this big old shifty grin on my face. And I could feel my energy rising. And then I perform better. Love it. And That's- this is something that's so critical. It's an easy thing. And people go, oh, gratitude, schmatitude, you know. But the truth is, it really matters. Absolutely. Also, what I realized is we cannot, I heard this from a specialist, we cannot have a positive and negative conscious thought at the same time. Think about it. It's so simple. It's so obvious. You can't have a positive, negative, conscious thought. So if you put attention and intention into gratitude, what are you focusing on? You're focusing on your abundance, your your wins, your successes, your goals, as opposed to the opposite where many of us live. We live in that attitude of scarcity, which is the problems, the solutions, the blocks. When you focus on gratitude, focusing on what you got. And when you focus on gratitude, really focus. I'm talking about really put intention into this. The feelings of anxiety, fear, anger, whatever it is, they can't coexist because you're focusing on gratitude. When I really embrace gratitude, man, I'm just like, I got this big old smile on my face and it really does change your chemistry. It's proven. Again, scientifically proven. It changes the chemistry. It's a really critical thing. No question. Every single day. And I can hear it, man. I love it. I'm, I'm getting that energy from you. And this can be practiced, even though, you know, I hear folks talking about I can't because I've got challenges or problems. We all have challenges. But I think, you know, the even though we have this, I'm grateful for A, B and C, right? That practice cultivating. it. Well, you need to find the little things, especially in the challenging times. What I was going to say is it's pretty easy to focus on gratitude when things are going well, but it can be more effective to focus on gratitude in the challenging times. And that is because you can't have the positive and negative conscious thought. So I don't care if things are going really bad and you're really stressed out. Take some time out, stop and just think, what am I grateful for? What is working? Reorient your mind, refocus your mind. Your mind will follow it. Well, listen, remember, you are senior to your mind. The whole idea behind creating attitude shifts is you are consciously driving your mind to think about different things, which is going to produce more desirable behavior, which is going to produce more desirable consequences. That's how it works. It works. Try it. Especially when you think in the time where you think, oh, I could never, these are the biggest problems. That's the time you need it the most. You know, that's why meditation is so great. Meditation calms the mind. You can do a gratitude meditation. You can combine them both. Right. Whatever. Do you ever do that or have you done that before performing on stage with Pink or others or public speaking? Any of that, just even a couple of deep breaths kind of meditation? I just said I do it on stage. I do it on stage almost every single performance with Pink. There's a point where I stop and I conjure up gratitude because I want to conjure up even more energy. Yeah. And I want to be grateful. I look at the audience. I look at every one of the single band members. I get grateful about this person, grateful about that person. Look at the lights. Look at the audience. Feel the energy. I get grateful about that. You know, I mean, again, it's pretty easy when you're on stage with Pink. You're already kind of in the zone. But if I'm getting nervous or I'm getting challenged or I have an issue or I'm worried about something, I will consciously shift to the attitude of gratitude because it really does make a difference. And now one of the things... only one one attitude shift. I got a gazillion. When the book comes out, you'll learn a lot more. When does the book come out, Mark? Uh, we're hoping, we're planning for this fall. But like my last book, I interview a lot of top performers from different industries to get their perspectives on attitude and attitude shifting. I just interviewed Howie Mandel. I interviewed the CEO from Kodak. Um, I interviewed Tony Shea. I've interviewed, I'm just interviewing a whole bunch of different people. I want to get some more sports people, 
Um, I want to get people with perceptions and perspectives from all different industries. That sounds great. We'll definitely look forward to that and we'll post it when it comes out. Um, you know, one of the things she does that would give me stage fright is she's on all of these cables being lifted up and flown around. Uh, you're not doing any of that stuff on the drums, right? You're not having I know, the- I, my job's easy. It's, it's humbling, man. She's humbling. She is such a badass that, yeah. but that's when I realized that I really need to be acute and focused and my capabilities really got to be dialed so i'm confident because she's gonna if i'm not confident on stage she will get that energy that vibe she needs us all to be really confident because she can die if something goes wrong right so she relies on every one of the 225 people from the third carpenter to the gal that's bringing the water on stage to our backline techs like i got the greatest drum tech gary Grimm to every single person on the tour is great at what they do. And everybody matters. Everybody's gig matters. I have such respect and honor for the riggers, the people that are climbing up and hanging up and doing yeah. the geometry and hanging the PA and the lights. And the, right. I mean, man, it's impressive. Such a well-oiled machine. My gig is easy. Right. I look at the commitment of pink and I look at the commitment of the dancers and people that are flying and doing all this stuff yeah. that they can die from. Uh, I mean, you know, it's highly unlikely I'm going to die from sitting in a drum set, you know? Um, so, but I do pay a lot of attention to them and put a lot of energy toward them and toward her. And I look at her when she's flying. I'm not just like, you're going jamming and you dubba, 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 chub. Like I put the energy I'm watching. I'm looking for nuances. I'm looking for if there are going to be any challenges, if we need to change anything, we've had to make adaptations at the last minute when we're doing aerial things. And that is, something you really need to pay attention to because again, that makes a big difference. So I'm very, very into, again, I'm there to be of service. I just want to be of service to her sure. and make her life easier. I want to make everybody else's life easier. Yeah. It's amazing. And, and certainly being the drummer, we are in a serving uh, position. When do you guys go back out on tour? That's a darn good question. <laughs> right now there's nothing scheduled, but okay. you never know. Never know. <laughs> and, and, you're also playing on the albums, correct? So you're in the studio? No, not really. I played on a couple of things, but most of the drumming performances are programmed. Just about okay. everything's programmed. She had Taylor Hawkins play on one song from last record. It was very cool. Um, and uh, I, again, I played on a few things. I played on live albums, but uh, mostly she works with producer writers that program their own stuff. Okay. And it's it. almost all programmed. But one of the nice things about that, though, is we actually get to then take the music and then evolve it live and then right. put the live touch on it. It becomes even, you know, more energetic. And, uh, I, I think we really thrive on the fact that we get to evolve it. Right. It's amazing. You, you know, we talked about keeping time. Uh, this goes for any musician, not just drummers, but what would be your top one or two tips for a musician to help with them keeping better time? Well, look up Tom Mandola and take the rhythm chords. <laughs> basically what i did is i started i didn't even touch the drums for a few tr touch the sticks for a while it was all clapping it was clapping to all these different tempos me and the goal was to be able to clap for one minute without hearing the metronome so you were so locked you got in train there's a there's a concept a literal physiological occurrence called entraining in which two oscillating bodies will start to oscillate together if you put two old-fashioned analog clocks that tick and they're ticking out of sync, 
eventually they will tick in sync. In training is something that we naturally want to do. So when you're working with a metronome, you're training your body to align with the metronome. And we do it at all tempos. We start at 120, go up four steps, go down four steps, and do it all the way down to 30, up to 220 or 240. And when you're down to 30, the, the goal is to be able to feel all the space in between those. First, you're subdividing, then you're feeling the space. Be able to clap to 30 for a minute without any flam, that's a big challenge. But if you could do that, you know, feeling the space between the notes, what you don't play is just as important as what you don't play. So develop your internal sense of time is to really respect the space. So I worked very hard on that was the respecting of the space. And I stopped rushing my fills and I started giving more space. Um, you know, some of the drummers that we love to feel so much of, or we think of being fat or behind the beat or thick, you know, is like, like John Bonham. Because there was almost so much space in the fills. I mean, any great, great drummer that I know, I mean, anybody from Antonio Sanchez, who's one of my dear friends, one of my favorite drummers, to Vinny, to uh, Abe Laboreal Jr., to Greg Bissonnette, my, my dear friend, to Josh Freeze, to uh, Tony Williams, to Buddy Rich. I mean, there's so much, there's space in what they do, too. But you need to get your internal sense of time. It's every musician's responsibility, not just drummers. So... And that was the big, that's the big mis misconception is the drummer keeps the time. No, everybody keeps the time. Everybody together. What makes the police have the feel of the police versus the feel of the Foo Fighters versus the feel of the Beatles is the collective way that everybody feels time. We all feel time in a slightly different place. But if you had 10 drummers sit together and all play, I mean, play it separately, everybody would have a slightly different feel. And if you slowed it down and you looked at it on a graph, you would see that everybody's limbs are slightly aligned differently by milliseconds or microseconds even. Right. We all have our own feel. But for me, it was the idea of just working on getting my limbs aligned and working on all these different tempos so my body became comfortable. And if I found a tempo that was particularly challenging, I would work on that. You know, because some tempos for some drummers might be easy. I remember hitting around like, 78 or something it was giving me challenges so i was really working at 78 for some reason my body was not so aligned with that so i worked a little a little more diligently on that particular tempo just to get more comfortable with because for me you know you get four beats of the click and from beat one bar one i want to be exact i don't want to take two two bars for it to kind of get the the feel and the groove to be okay especially when i'm in the studio Especially if I'm working with a big artist or, you know, they're paying a lot, paying a lot of money. It's a big studio with an engineer, man. I got to get it from bar one, beat one. And I don't want people to replace my drum tracks or correct my drum tracks. I tell my students, man, play it so in time. If they want to change out a few sounds or augment some sounds, that's great. But they're not moving your stuff around. I don't, I don't want people to have to move my stuff around. I also, because when I do tracks for people, I do tracks over the internet a lot. People send me tracks. To play along with. I usually do two full takes, one a little more complicated, one a little more simple. Then I give them all these alternative grooves and sections and fills so they can cut those in if they want. And I want them to be able to cut them in without having to worry about it. So if they decide they like this feel, be feel better or they want to repeat this verse or they want to do a different groove that I did when I did it another time, they can cut that in and I'm not going to be flamming with the click. It's important to me. As yeah. I said, I'm obsessed. But to me, that's part of my job. 
No question. And you do it well, sir. You do it well. You know, absolutely. We've talked a lot about overcoming stage fright and that anxiety today. Maybe we can, uh, as we near the end for today, Mark, um, maybe the top one or two tip for whether musically or just in life that folks can overcome that stage fright, whatever they're afraid of. I'm going to go with Spinal Tap. Have a good time (laughs) all the time. Well, first of all, let's get rid of the double negative. You're not, let's not overcome, let's not focus on the problem because it's like, don't focus on a black cat. Don't focus on a black cat. What do you do in your mind immediately creates a black cat? Relax, have fun, do the work. Simple. That's it. You know, work with a metronome, get comfortable when you're playing. As far as the stage fright, well, it depends on what you're doing. The more you have developed, your capability, the more confidence you actually have. And shift your attitude to an attitude of what you want. Look at the end goal. Look at what you want to create. You know, attitude, behavior, consequence. What's the consequence you want to create? What behavior would you need to generate to create that consequence? Pretty simple stuff. And then what attitude do you need to create to generate that behavior? So just do it. Simple. Real, I mean, I don't want to act like it's the simplest thing in the world but the truth is like make it simple make it as simple as you can have as much fun as you possibly can remember the more fun you have in the higher level you perform anyway sounds great is there anything we haven't covered uh mark oh my god we've covered so much that's plenty <laughs> awesome <laughs> there's a lot more i could say but come on i don't want to take up any more time i want to get i also want people to be excited to read both books see right. what else is in store so there's a lot of information you're going to get, a lot of cool stories. Yeah. And where can folks find you online, Mark? You can go to Amazon to buy Conquering Life Stage Fright. That's easy. Or you can go to, uh, yeah, Amazon's the best place for that. Um, uh, the book A times B equals C, um, I call it Hacking the Rockstar Attitude. We don't even have a title for it. Um, I'll send out big posts. Follow me on Instagram at, at MarkyPlanet, M-A-R-K-Y-P-L-A-N-E-T, Follow me on Facebook. I don't know. It's just find Mark Shulman on Facebook. Um, follow me on Twitter at Marky Planet. I'll let you know. And I'm also going to hire a publicist. We'll be pu- you know, doing a lot of publicity. Hopefully, I'll get some radio and TV shows, and you'll be finding out about it. And you know, you know, if you ever want, if you ever want to email, just email info at markshulman.com, M-A-R-K-S-C-H-U-L-M-A-N. And either me or a member of my team will get your email. And uh, if you want, when the book comes out, I'm happy to sell it to you directly. I'll sell a signed copy to you directly. Got to pay a little more for postage and handling, but I'll do it. Sounds great. This has been so fun, Mark. Uh, Fun, inspiring, so positive. Mark Shulman, thank you so much for being on the Rock Therapy Show today. My friend, David. You rock hard, my brother. Thank you. (laughs) Very cool episode. What did you think about that? We'd love to hear from you wherever you're listening from in the world. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and share it. And if you want to watch this interview, there's a video too. You can check it out on our YouTube channel, Facebook, Instagram, and our website, musiciansontherecord.com. Until next time, I'm David Ward. Thanks for listening.